to Holiness Talks. In this episode and subsequent ones, we want to focus our attention on holiness in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is a very important book. I mean, just like any other book in the Bible is important. But the significance of Ephesians, particularly for the church, has been noted by several scholars. The theologian Samuel Taylor Coleridge calls Ephesians the divinest composition of man. Ephesians has been called the crown of St. Paul's writing and has been called the queen of epistles. In fact, some believe that is the greatest and most relevant of Paul's works. Another scholar, W.O. Cavan, said Ephesians is the greatest piece of writing in all of history. It may well be the most influential document ever written. A.T. Robinson, New Testament scholar, says that Paul has written nothing more profound than chapters one to three of Ephesians. Well, you wonder whether those qualifications are not a little bit over the top. That's not the point we want to make. The point we want to make is that Ephesians has a lot to say to the church. And particularly in the area of holiness, there is a lot to learn from Ephesians. So we will devote this episode and subsequent ones, at least a few more, to looking at the importance of holiness in Ephesians. Let us bear in mind, as we look at the book, that Paul's main purpose, his main motivation, as expressed throughout the book of Ephesians, is his understanding of his believers, is his understanding of the believers' union with Christ. So you will find that in Ephesians, there is a preoccupation with the expounding of the nature of Christian salvation with respect to the church that was composed of Jews and Gentiles. And Paul now moves on to show the character of new life that flow from our union or participation in Christ. Paul identifies the very existence of the church only as a function of the person and work of Christ in his death and resurrection and his glorification. As you probably saw in previous episodes, and as we want to iterate here again, Paul never distinguishes between practicing believers and Christians who belong only nominally to the community. As far as Paul is concerned, being Christian and belonging to the visibly assembled community are for him evidently equivalent. Beyond this, it is clear as we read Ephesians, being Christian also requires correspondence between the sanctification received in baptism and the moral life of the baptized. So Paul draws a great distinction. He insists that if too great a gap exists between the two, the appropriate consequences can be drawn. 
we want to look at the vocabulary of holiness in the Ephesian correspondence. Holiness in Ephesians is expressed in various ways. It includes prayer. It includes exhortation. To drive home his point, Paul, in addition to the use of the Hagios word, and that word group employs several metaphors, such as light, because the believer's light, temple, he uses the analogy of the body, among others, both to describe the Ephesians as well as to motivate them to live in a manner that is congruent with their calling. So right in Ephesians chapter one, verse one, Paul refers to his adversaries as saints or holy ones, as well as those who believe in Christ. It is very striking that in describing the predominantly Gentile believers as saints, Paul is not in any way afraid of using for all believers, regardless of ethnicity, a term that is prevalent in the Old Testament as a designation for the old covenant people of God. That we see in Exodus chapter 22, verse 31, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 18, verse 21, 22, and 25. They were called holy ones because they had been chosen by God and consecrated to him as his own people. Thus, by status, they were the people of God. So the word, the Greek word hagios, or holy here, is a descriptive expression that portrays the new covenant people of God as the redeemed eschatological community that is prophesied by Daniel. And it is quite notable that Paul uses the plural, which precludes individualism and isolationism. Because today we see everything in terms of the individual and isolation. But to make it clear for Paul, there's not anything like that. God's people are holy ones. They are saints in communion. We are saints in communion. And it is clear in Ephesians, as we shall see, that holiness for Paul was more than mere status. It was a state of being. God called his people to reflect his own purity and integrity in their lives. In that passage, which is very important, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, it says, Be ye holy as I, the Lord your God, I am holy. We see the same thing in Leviticus 11.45. The use of Hagios here suggests that the notion of inward personal holiness becomes attached to it from the thought of responsibility and obligation which is laid on those who are set apart to a holy God. To be holy, therefore, entails being separated from defilement and becoming devoted to reflecting the character of God. In this episode, we want to spend a few minutes to look at the subject of holiness and election. 
Now, this episode will not go into the details of election or the theology of election. But then we want to see the significance of holiness as it relates to election. And as much as Paul refers to it in Ephesians chapter one, we see that in verses four to six. Ephesians chapter one, verses four to six, Paul says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we will be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glory, of his grace, which he freely bestowed us on us in the beloved. Now, Paul makes a staggering statement in chapter one, verse four, that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, here we see the issue of election. And I understand and I know that there are various ideas about election or predestination. For some, predestination or election means God has chosen some people to be saved and chosen some people to be lost. Now, that can't be Paul's thought, not at all. I mean, and that is not the general sentiment of the New Testament. Whoever believes God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes will not perish, but have everlasting life. And of course, writing to Timothy, he said, who wills all people, all men, the word generic men there, meaning men and women, all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's as much as we're going to talk about in terms of election. But then the question is, what is the goal of election? That exactly is the issue here. You see, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 22, Paul refers to the reconciling effect that the crucifixion of Christ had for those who have been estranged and hostile to God. Through Christ's work, the believer may now participate being presented before God as holy, blameless, and irreproachable. The same sentiment is seen in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Paul views not Christ's death, but Christ's selection. Here at this point, I use the word selection of us. Paul is thinking of an activity that was antecedent to that which he discussed in Colossians 1, 21 to 22. In both passages, God and Christ work at the same end, the presentation before God of the believers who are holy and blameless. In other words, when Paul is talking about election, and predestination here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and verse 6, Paul is not talking about the choice of some people either to be lost or to be saved, regardless of what they do. That's not Paul's concern. Paul's concern here is the goal of election. That's Paul's concern. To understand what Paul is saying, we need to look at Paul's use of the word agios. To understand the use of agios here, we need to note that Paul is speaking strictly of God's activity 
not humans. God chose us in him, in Christ. When Paul says that believers have been chosen before the foundation of the world, he probably had in mind God's act of selecting these believers before creation, independent of any and all circumstances appertaining to these created persons. When pieced together, then verse 4a asserts that God has chosen us proleptically in Christ before any of us was created. The reason Paul and his readers were chosen was that they might be holy and blameless in God's presence. And that is to be understood in the same way as Colossians 1, verse 22, the second part. In that these people were chosen, they were separated to God. The reason believers are chosen or separated to God was in order that they may be ethically pure and subject to no charge when they stand before God at the time of judgment. Listen to this. They were not separated in order that they be separated. As Taylor rightly states, holy expresses the positive experiential purpose of God's choice. More than ceremonial holiness is meant here. That is, this is more than a mere difference stemming from a divine separation. The word holy in this passage expresses the inner moral difference which prevails when God's grace is operating in the heart. This fact is abundantly indicated in the second word which describes the result of the choice. The result of the choice is to be blameless. The German New Testament scholar as Konzelman suggests that holy or blameless and irreproachable signify perfection, which is the purpose of God's election. That's important. But it needs to be emphasized that this perfection is not something into which the believer may walk himself or herself thereby claim a personal accomplishment. Not at all. Believers will be presented before God, blameless. Paul held the same high expectations as did of any as he did of any other Christians. When Paul prays that the believers may be filled with all the fullness of God, he reminds them that the gifts of Christ were given so that they might attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The goal or purpose for which God chose his people in Christ is that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Evidently, election does bring privilege while it also carries with it responsibility. The New Testament scholar Trevor Grizzle puts it in a very clear way. He says, and I quote, far from giving a false sense of smug complacency to sin, far from encouraging moral laxity, election places an ethical demand upon 
the Christian. If I may repeat, far from giving a false sense of smug complacency to sin, far from encouraging moral laxity, election, or may I say our selection, places an ethical demand upon the Christian. End of quote. Let's put it this way. God's purpose in the believer's election was not simply to repair the damage that was done by sin. It's more than that. But it's also to fulfill God's original intention for humankind, namely to create for himself a people perfectly conformed to the likeness of his son. We see the same sentiment in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. In Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, Paul expresses the same sentiment. And he says, I read, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he will be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, listen to it carefully. Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That's God's goal. That's God's desire for you and me to be conformed to the image of his son. We're not to take sin lightly under any circumstance. Sin is not to be taken lightly by the believer, not at all. God saved us to make us saints. He did not save us to make us better sinners, to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, let's bear in mind, and we've said this over and over in some of the previous episodes, that what God's word commands, his spirit makes possible. As we talk about holiness, let's bear in mind that this is not holiness by struggling. No, this is not holiness by trying. No, far, far be from me. This is holiness by trusting. Then Paul talks about being holy and blameless in his sight. Again, Paul echoes the language of Colossians 1.22, where the purpose of Christ's reconciling work is the presentation of his people holy, blameless, and irreproachable in his presence. These two adjectives, holy and blameless, also appear in 5.27, in chapter 5 of Ephesians, Ephesians verse 27. And they were used to describe the unblemished animals set apart for God as Old Testament sacrifices. This language was already present within the Old Testament and used to describe ethical purity. These terms have cultic overtones in Ephesians 1 and 4 and then in Colossians 1.22, referring to the ethical holiness and freedom from moral blemish. However, one may suggest that in as much as a temple is cultic space, the word holy and the word 
blameless are capable of both nuances. Paul could easily contextualize. Paul appropriates the traditional language, images, and recontextualizes them under the guidance of the spirit. And this is the case here where Paul uses the language of sanctification in the Old Testament purity code and transposes the, that language consistently applying it to the ethical character and behavior that was the responsibility of the believer. The word blameless, the Greek word amomos, is used in the Old Testament to describe sacrificial animals. We we'll see it in the Septuagint of Exodus chapter 29, verse 37. Again, in this usage, it has an ethical connotation. What we are looking at here, the ultimate end of God's choice is our sanctification, our being ethically pure and without blame. We are elected unto holiness. And the truth of election should surely make us humble and puts the responsibility upon us. We see it over and over. Romans 8.28, we've read already. We read 29 and 30. All things God causes, all things to work together for good. Who are those? Those who are selected, selected by God and predestined unto holiness, predestined unto purity. So what we're saying is we're elected unto holiness. Do you believe in election? Also that God has chosen you. Well, thank God for such marvelous grace that you are one of those selected ones who believe in Christ. Always remember that election is not a goal in itself. It's not the end of the matter. It is surely not a ticket assuring you of heaven. No, it's a means to an end, namely that as his people who will be saved will be holy and godly people. If you remember the language of salvation in Paul, that we have been saved, we have been saved and we shall be saved. The ultimate salvation. So election is a means unto an end. And that is the fact that God's people will be saved. And if we'll be saved in the end, we are to be holy and godly people. In other words, the responsibility comes upon us as Christians. As we know these truths, we should be good Christians. In the past and present, they surely are our people who are saved. I mean, deficient, but they knew little or nothing of election. I don't think the Ethiopian eunuch knew much or anything about election or the Philippian jailer, at least not at first. But surely they were elected from eternity. In other words, it is possible to be saved as elect without knowing much of anything about it. But now it's been made clear to us. We've been raised together with Christ. 
we've died with him, we've been raised together with him in baptism, and now our lives shall reflect the glory of God. We know why we're children of God. We know more of that infinite, indescribable, and marvelous love of God as the source of our salvation. But we also ought to know as people who have been selected by God, as we put our faith in Christ Jesus, we need to ask ourselves, what godly people should we be? How we should live in love? With that, God is pleased and his name is glorified. That will be our episode for this month. In subsequent episodes, we'll be digging deeper into holiness in Ephesians. But bear in mind, you and I have been chosen by God as believers in Christ. And let's bear in mind seriously that our choice by God is of him and we're chosen to be holy, to be pure and blameless in his sight. Don't forget again, God is not Pharaoh, a taskmaster, who will give the children of Israel the task of molding bricks without providing the straws to do that. If God calls us to holiness, then he knows we can be holy, and he has made provision for holiness. Christ died on the cross of Calvary. He rose up. He died for our sins and rose up for our justification. He died so that we might be restored and reconciled back to God. The spirit is made available to us. The blood has not lost its power. We have the word of God. So we have all the resources. And as part of God's people, living in a community of faith, we have so many privileges and opportunities to live the life that God wants us to live. Thank you for listening to this episode. Hope you've been blessed by it. Looking forward to seeing you.